Hello again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and I'm really happy that you're here studying with me today. We are going to be diving into episode 197, but before we do that, a couple of things. First, if this is your very first time here, welcome, welcome. And if you find that you have been coming back to the podcast, but always have to search for it, if you follow or subscribe, the episodes will magically show up for you. So go ahead and do that. Next, I always like to shout out to my San fam. That's the Straight A Nursing family. And this one goes out to Leanne. And Leanne says this, I'm almost finished with nursing school and struggled hard with the high acuity content. I found Nurse Mo and her study podcasts. Usually, I don't like to study with podcasts or videos, but I put on the pod quizzes or explanatory podcasts every time I was in the car and I aced my exam. I can confidently say it is worth every penny. She explains the material better than my instructors. Thank you so much, Leanne, for taking the time to tell me how much that study sesh has helped you, and I'm so proud of you for acing your exams. Good, good job. So what Leanne is talking about is my other podcast called Study Sesh. It involves pod quizzes, some case studies, power hours, drills, but the bulk of it are pod quizzes, and they're just a great way to study using auditory learning. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So in this episode, we are diving into mental health, and we are going to be talking about anorexia nervosa. So if you struggle with this disorder and thinking about it, talking about it, anything like that triggers disordered eating behaviors, please proceed with extreme caution or consider just skipping this one altogether. Your mental health is far, far more important than any nursing school exam, okay? All right, so if you've decided to stick around, we're talking about anorexia nervosa, and this is a disorder in which a restriction of caloric intake leads to a body weight that is significantly lower than expected for the individual's age, their sex, their state of physical health. And there are two types of anorexia. There's the restricting type and the binging purging type. It's really important to note that the binging purging type of anorexia is not the same DSM-5 diagnosis as bulimia. They are different. An individual with binging purging anorexia will repeatedly binge eat and purge by vomiting or using laxatives. They may also add on excessive exercise after a binge as well. The key difference between the individual with bulimia and the individual with binging, purging anorexia is that individuals with anorexia show long-term weight suppression as a key component of their illness, and individuals with bulimia are often normal or higher than normal body weight. Now, there are probably a lot of other nuances and differences, but for a nursing school exam, that's probably going to be the key difference that you might be asked about, okay? Now, the other type of anorexia is the restricting type, and it is characterized by dieting, 
fasting, and excessive exercise. There is no binging and purging with the restrictive type. So anorexia is more common in females than males with a ratio of about 10 to 1. The exact pathophysiology is not very well known, but evidence suggests that genetic and environmental factors may come into play. And additionally, what I saw as I was researching this topic is the evidence shows that individuals with anorexia nervosa have altered brain function and structure, including dopamine and or serotonin deficits. Activation of the corticolimbic system, which controls fear and appetite, and lowered activity in areas of the brain that control habitual behaviors. So, let's talk a little bit about the diagnostic criteria for anorexia. So, in order for someone to meet the diagnostic criteria for anorexia, they have to meet some criteria. And that is a restriction of caloric intake that leads to a BMI less than 18.5. You may also see some textbooks might say a percentage below what's expected for their height. But the resource that I use said a BMI of less than 18.5. An intense fear of weight gain would be the other criteria. Another is displaying behaviors that prevent weight gain, such as excessive exercise or purging, and then having a distorted perception of their own weight or body shape in spite of weight loss. So those are kind of the basics about anorexia. So let's dive into it in more detail, and we will do that using the straight A nursing latte method. So the L in latte refers to more than the patient's physical appearance. It's that overall overview of how the patient presents, what they state as their symptoms, and what you notice about them. So the individual with anorexia will typically display the following psychological characteristics, and there are a lot. So this episode is pretty extensive. It lines up more with how deep I go into things in Beyond Boot Camp if you're at all interested in diving into topics a little more deeply. I will put a link to that in the episode notes. So my point with that is don't feel like you have to stop and take notes. I do have this all written on the website as an article, okay? So psychological characteristics that the patient may display are a preoccupation with food that can be obsessive. This individual could fear some foods and extremely restrict foods. Also, they may show food-related rituals such as not mixing foods, cutting things into really tiny pieces, maybe chewing food and spitting it out instead of swallowing. There could be a big overestimation of calorie consumption, a worry of or total avoidance of eating in public or in front of others. They may have exercise rituals and a lot of just general restlessness. They may have a denial of this whole disease process and be resistant to treatment. The individual could show perfectionist-type thinking, inflexible thinking, and a really great need for control. When I was in nursing school, I remember this being on exams, this perfectionism, wanting to control things. 
poor sleep, they may have depression, and maybe also with that inhibited expression. They may also have anxiety and difficulty regulating emotions. Along with that perfectionism, you may see rigid behaviors or behavioral rigidity, such as I'm only purchasing food items from this certain store. They may show non-suicidal self-injury, such as cutting, burning their skin, picking their skin. They often have a pretty unrealistic perception of their own body weight and an intense fear of weight gain despite having continued weight loss. Individuals with anorexia often will equate being thin with their self-worth, and it can be a very disruptive way to cope with emotional problems or emotional challenges. And many, many do not want treatment, especially initially, or think that treatment is even warranted. Some people view this as a lifestyle choice and have a very real fear of the weight gain that is associated with treatment. So that's kind of an overview of psychological characteristics that you may see in an individual with anorexia. Now let's talk about more of the physical signs and symptoms. So the overall impression is that the individual will usually be very thin, could have edema of the extremities, and that's because of a lot of different factors. This can include protein losses and third spacing of fluids. Could be due to hormonal changes, rapid refeedings, electrolyte imbalances, abusive diuretics, abusive diet pills, and abusive laxatives. So lots of reasons they may have this edema. Additionally, you will likely notice a loss of muscle mass, and the individual is probably going to complain of weakness and fatigue. They often wear baggy clothing or lots of layers and state that they're often cold. Neurologically, the patient may be irritable and complain of headaches or may have syncope. Cardiovascular-wise, they could have some pretty significant cardiovascular things going on like bradycardia, hypotension, orthostatic hypotension, and even arrhythmias. They could complain of palpitations and even chest pain, which is due to the loss of cardiac muscle. Respiratory shortness of breath is not uncommon. Respiratory muscle weakness and reduced aerobic capacity. And then looking at gastrointestinal, the patient may complain of constipation if the disease is moderate to severe. They could have gastroparesis, which is delayed gastric emptying, and this can cause, you know, all kinds of GI symptoms, gas, bloating, early fullness, or you may hear it called early satiety, nausea, or vomiting. Hematologically, severely ill patients may have anemia, leukopenia, or thrombocytopenia, and you could even see petechiae or purpura on the extremities. Looking at dermatological signs and symptoms, these could be delayed wound healing, dry skin, itching, erythema, areas of hyperpigmentation, a fine downy body hair, hair loss. The skin may look kind of yellowish, and that's due to excessive carotene levels. 
and acrocyanosis, which is cold and or bluish hands and feet. Now, I had to look up about the excess carotene levels turning the skin kind of yellow because that was really intriguing to me. And what I learned was that it's not fully understood why it occurs, but some possible causes are malfunctions in lipid metabolism. Maybe also combined with that is a very high consumption of foods rich in carotenoids, you know, in relation to other types of foods. So lots and lots of fruits and vegetables and not much else. And higher concentrations of circulating carotenoids relative to the amount of body fat. And then patients with that purging type of anorexia may have tooth enamel erosion or calluses on their hands or knuckles from using them for the purging. So those are kind of like the things that you would notice about a patient with anorexia. How do they look? Next is assessment. A is the next letter in latte. How do you assess the patient? So you want to assess for all those physiological things that we talked about in the L component of the latte method. Pay very careful attention to anything that requires immediate attention, like intentions of self-harm, blood pressure issues, oxygen saturation or respiratory compromise, cardiac dysfunction, okay? So those are kind of the really important, really like life-threatening things that you would need to be watching for as you're assessing the patient's physiological signs. You also want to measure their height, measure their weight, and calculate the BMI and get those measurements. Don't take their report as fact because, again, they may over or underestimate things. Ask the patient about recent weight changes, their exercise habits, their eating habits, food restrictions, if they have any ritualistic behaviors. And you want to always do this in a very non-judgmental way. You are seeking to learn about them. You're seeking to understand them. You will assess the patient's self-esteem, their perceptions of their weight, and for any fears of weight gain, which they probably will have. And you always want to assess the patient, ask if they have any habits of self-harm or thoughts of self-harm. This can include things like cutting, which I mentioned earlier, and suicidal ideation, which is a psychiatric emergency. Assess the patient's medical and psychiatric history. Most individuals with anorexia have a history of mental health disorders, such as depression, anxiety, OCD is not uncommon, substance use disorders, body dysmorphic disorder, and even phobias around swallowing or weight gain, and even PTSD. You want to ask female patients about their menstrual cycle, including the last date of their cycle and how regular their cycle is, because that weight loss can contribute to amenorrhea or a loss of their menstrual period. Assess the patient for use of over-the-counter medications like laxatives or diet pills that they may be overusing. You will monitor their intake, their output, as well as their eating patterns. And of course, you're getting a full set of vital signs. I would also be palpating their pulse to check for irregularities there. And if they're on the monitor already, I'm assessing their heart rhythm and looking for any EKG changes. 
I can say with certainty today that becoming a nurse was one of the smartest decisions I ever made. It's allowed me to make a difference in people's lives, both patients and students, and given me a career that fulfills me in so many ways. But feeling certain wasn't always the case. I remember getting ready to graduate from nursing school and feeling a lack of confidence about bridging that gap from student to new nurse. Today, there's the Nurse Residency Program with HCA Healthcare. It's designed to help newly graduating nursing students succeed. You'll build your confidence with hands-on clinical experience while developing your critical thinking skills. You'll be supported by a community of experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents and build a foundation for your career at any of HCA Healthcare's 184 hospitals across 19 states. And becoming a nurse resident with HCA Healthcare comes with other great benefits like tuition reimbursement, student loan assistance, clear career pathways to help you achieve your professional goals, and access to company-wide clinical education programs. Now, I know many of you graduating now feel uncertain about the support you'll receive as a new grad, and if I could give you one piece of advice, I'd say definitely apply to the Nurse Residency Program at HCA Healthcare. They accept applications from nursing students who are preparing to graduate within the next six months or graduate nursing students who have six months or less of experience when they apply. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. So the next letter in the LATTE method is T, and that stands for tests. What tests will be ordered? What tests will be conducted? Screenings are often utilized to assess these individuals and can include questions like, do you believe yourself to be fat when others say that you are thin? Do you ever eat in secret? And do you suffer with or have you ever suffered in the past with an eating disorder? Lab tests will definitely be ordered to assess for common complications, including anemias, leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, electrolyte imbalances, which are really common, disrupted renal function, liver function, and hypothyroidism. An x-ray may be conducted to evaluate for a loss of bone density secondary to starvation, so they could have osteoporosis, And if they weren't already placed on the monitor, then an EKG will likely be ordered and conducted to assess for cardiac dysrhythmias. The second T in latte is for treatments. So what treatments will be provided? The treatment for anorexia is going to involve an entire team of medical professionals, and this will include doctors, dietitian, mental health experts, possibly also social workers. The underlying psychological issues absolutely must be addressed while the patient concurrently receives nutrition therapy. And the goal is to reach and maintain a healthy weight. So individuals can get this care in the outpatient setting, but will require inpatient care if the condition is not improving or their health or life is in danger in any way. 
So some medications that you may see utilized in anorexia care are metoclopramide, which goes by the brand name of Reglan, and this medication is used for that gastroparesis. It speeds gastric emptying and stimulates the stomach to contract. So that will relieve those symptoms of that gas, that bloating, that early fullness that people with gastroparesis have. Laxatives may be needed if the individual has constipation. Polyethylene glycol is a commonly used one, and if that one doesn't work, possibly lactulose could be utilized. Vitamins, minerals, fluids, electrolytes, probably going to need all of that. And psychopharmacology will be utilized to address underlying disorders, and this commonly includes SSRIs such as fluoxetine. Olanzapine is an antipsychotic and mood stabilizer, which is sometimes used in acutely ill individuals who maybe aren't responding well to other treatments. Olanzapine has one added benefit of helping to increase weight. So a key component of the care of these individuals is the use of behavior contracts. So that could be part of the treatment plan. And these are written documents that the patient signs as like a pledge to change or avoid disruptive, disordered, or unproductive behavior. So when the patient agrees to these terms, behavior contracts can be quite effective and are used frequently in the mental health setting. I've used them several times with patients in the ICU, so you'll see them. Even if you don't work at an inpatient or outpatient facility, you could definitely see them used in the ER, on a med surge floor, in the ICU. You'll see them in the regular hospital setting as well. Some key nursing interventions include you want to encourage the individual to have positive eating and exercise habits as well as adequate hydration. You will monitor them during and after meals. This is very important. Monitor their eating and then monitor afterwards. And I feel like this is usually a really good test question. So you actually watch them if they have to go into the bathroom. You need to accompany them to prevent purging. You want to provide reassurance and support about the individual's body image, encourage their expression of their feelings, and activities that boost their self-esteem. You want to encourage them to focus on their eating and not engage in other activities during mealtime, and of course, encourage family support. So again, the care is not just therapy and nutrition. We also have to address their physiological needs as well. And as you'll see in a moment when we start talking about some of the complications, they can be complex. Before we do that, though, let's go into the next letter in the LATTE method, which is E, and that is how do you educate and evaluate for this condition. So one of the things that you really want to do is teach the patients the importance of adequate nutrition. They're going to get a lot of that from the dietitian as well, so you can reinforce that teaching. One tactic is several small meals throughout the day could be a lot easier for them to manage than three larger meals, so that could be something that you could teach them. You want to teach the importance of limiting exercise, teach individuals that have constipation that if they drink enough water and get some fiber in their diet, this can help that condition. Teach patients that have gastroparesis that the symptoms are not because they are eating. 
that the symptoms will actually improve the more weight they gain. So in the meantime, if they can avoid excessive amounts of fiber when they have gastroparesis, that could help. So that would be one caveat about the fiber. Teach individuals with amenorrhea that it is still possible to get pregnant, so they should use another form of contraception to avoid unplanned pregnancy. And because so many patients relapse, 35 to 55%, you want to teach the importance of attending all those follow-up appointments, medical appointments, and psychiatric appointments. And then you do want to advise them not to use medications inappropriately to induce weight loss, and that's typically around diet pills and laxatives. So another component in the latte method is that final E, which I have added in evaluation. So how we evaluate the effectiveness of our interventions is definitely going to vary based on, you know, what those interventions were, which will vary based on each patient's situation. But some examples, some ideas to kind of get you thinking along these lines include the patient will stop losing weight and weight will begin to increase. That would be an indicator that our intervention is working. Also, another one could be disordered eating and exercise patterns will cease. The individual will not purge after eating. The individual will set realistic goals about weight gain. The patient will participate in observed weighing daily. Electrolyte levels will normalize and the patient will be free of abnormal heart rhythms. Now, again, those aren't going to apply to every patient. It depends on what's going on with your patient, how you tailor your plan of care for them, the interventions you do for them, and then evaluating, was it effective? So let's talk a little bit about the complications of anorexia. So the weight loss and the significant malnutrition that occur with anorexia lead to a multitude of medical complications. So in general, as the body becomes starved of calories and nutrition, this leads to a loss of cell volume and atrophy of organs and muscles. So one very dangerous complication of anorexia is refeeding syndrome. It can occur after a period of prolonged starvation and Essentially, it involves abrupt and severe electrolyte disturbances that can lead to organ failure and death. And I started looking into it, and it got really complex, and it's really interesting physiologically. So this will be a whole episode all on its own. But for now, for the short version, just know that refeeding syndrome after the individual has had a prolonged period of starvation... And then we start feeding them, especially enteral nutrition. There will be abrupt and severe electrolyte disturbances, and this can lead to organ failure and death. Other key complications of anorexia are Wernicke encephalopathy, endocrine abnormalities, renal insufficiency, cardiac arrhythmias, heart failure, cardiac arrest, brain atrophy, and yes, patients can die from anorexia. 
So if you or someone you care about suffers from an eating disorder, I want to urge you to please reach out to the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA. I will include a link to that in the episode notes. They have a lot of online resources available for you. They have an online chat if you want to chat with someone, and they have a toll-free helpline. And if you are in crisis, you can text N-E-D-A, those four letters, N-E-D-A, so that's N as in Nancy, E, D as in David, A, to the number 741-741, and you will be connected with a trained volunteer at Crisis Text Line. And Crisis Text Line is an organization that utilizes text messaging to provide free 24-7 support to individuals who are struggling with mental health. So please reach out if this describes you. And that closes us out for today. So I will see you back here next week. We are talking about Parkinson's disease next week. So again, if you have followed or subscribed to the podcast, then it will magically show up for you, which is really great. And if you follow me on Instagram, I like to post little fun quizzes in my Instagram stories and things like that about the episode. So it's just another fun way to review a little bit. So follow at straight a nurse on Instagram. We'll be friends over there too. All right. I'll see you next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.